Well, aloha from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner, your host every Sunday for this webinar, this class in the ancient but moreover timeless or ageless traditions of spirituality, of religion, of metaphysics and mysticism that are found in all cultures and all times. This is a comparative look at philosophy, a look at religion, a look at the personal longing that every individual has, but many people successfully repress, a longing to be more, an aspiration to develop uh, or discover and develop, maybe better said, to discover and develop your human potential. I'd argue, as many others have before me, that this potential is within us and that we can sense it. We're aware of the fact that we are somehow undeveloped um, or less awake, less learned, um, less sophisticated, less aware. That's probably my favorite way to say it, less aware than we could be. And um, that's what we're working for. There are many, many benefits to wake up to a new and more inclusive sense of who you really are and what you're really for. Today's topic, the transcendentalists, in particular the ideas of self-reliance that we see in the writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson and to some extent also in his student, uh, Henry David Thoreau, and some of the other so-called American transcendentalists is something I thought we'd talk about this week. In one sense, this is intended to be a, a natural follow-on to the program we did last week on the cultural creatives. And uh, that's based on a book that came out about 10 years ago in the year 2000 by a couple of doctors, uh, Anderson and Ray, who um, said even then that much of what we see as burgeoning left-wing politics is really not rooted in political ideology, but rather in then uh, rather rooted in a emerging culture or subculture of creative people, of women and men who were. Uh, again, not driven by political ideology so much as by uh, a, a passion for justice, uh, for peace, for the rights of minorities and women, uh, for, um, uh, again, a bigger sense of justice in the world. And as we trace the roots of progressive thinking in the United States, we certainly have to pause for a period on this pre American Civil War era, when uh, particularly in the Boston area of New England, uh, around Harvard, there was this um, burgeoning transcendentalist movement. It came to some extent out of the Unitarians and the Universalists, who were challenging the Trinitarians of their time. But moreover, this was a period in many parts of Europe and 
the so-called New World, although, again, we're talking about the early 1800s now. It's before the American Civil War, but there is an America, there is a Constitution, and, and the nation is growing, expanding west. And Emerson, among others, in emphasizing the importance of self-reliance, was talking not only in the way Thoreau did about being more self-reliant vis-a-vis Walden Pond, right, getting out of town, getting your own little five acres, growing some vegetables, living on your own. That's certainly part of what these transcendentalists, including Emerson and Thoreau, meant when they talked about self-reliance, but they also talked about and this is what I'd like to emphasize today, self-reliance in matters of spirituality. To know thyself, as the old Greek admonition goes, is a matter of self-reliance. To be inspired by religious books is one thing, uh, but to be limited to literal translations and institutional definitions uh, was increasingly seen in this period as not really in our interest at all, but really to our detriment. And uh, hopefully if I do what I intend to do this morning, I'll make that more clear to you with a few quotations I have from Emerson and Thoreau to expand this idea of self-reliance from simply living at Walden Pond to uh, a much more inclusive sense of what it means to rely on yourself, to be interested in who you are as a unique individual, and to want to discover and develop uh, that human potential from a spiritual basis, and then reconcile from there our relationship to the world to materialism, to conspicuous consumption. There's an interesting dichotomy that's playing out right now as the Congress has just passed this health care bill. We see the right wing in this country playing as it always has, but with a more desperate tone, on the idea of individuality, independence, personal responsibility, and one can say self-reliance. And indeed, I would be the first as a progressive thinker to say these are core values. The right wing doesn't really uh, have any claim to them. The right wing or the conservative movement can claim self-reliance and independence and personal responsibility as conservative values, but I would say that they're found all across the spectrum, and they haven't cornered the market on those values any more than church, uh, Judeo-Christian or any other religion has cornered the market on ethics and morality. It's possible to be a humanist, to be very secular in your approach, and still find yourself with a conscience. Uh, to be moved, to be kind and loving and and, and gentle and, and considerate and compassionate. And that is not purely motivated by a fear of hellfire and eternal damnation. Uh, 
or a longing to spend eternity with God and Jesus in heaven. It is felt by many secular um, uh, people, many humanists, uh, agnostics, and uh, atheists, and they act on that moral imperative as well. This is some of the self-reliance that Emerson is talking about. And what the left wing in America is saying today is that's all good, what you guys are talking about, this self-reliance and personal responsibility stuff, but it does not obviate or eliminate the need for us to behave like members of a community and to have some consideration for your neighbor and to care for those people in your community that may be in trouble, that might not be able to care for themselves right now, maybe due to illness or injury or or economics. You know, this country's been driven into a ditch, and we'll leave it to historians to decide why and who and how and all of that, but certainly we need some new policies to get out of the ditch. We can't you know, drive off the road with um, some ignorant, short-sighted social and political policies and then insist that those same policies are going to put us upright and and back on the highway, zooming on, zooming on down the road. We need to do something differently to, <laughs> to, to get out of the ditch and, and back up onto the highway. And part of that, I would argue, is supplementing these, they're not really American values, but Americans think of them as American values, self-reliance and independence and personal responsibility, supplementing those with a sense of community and caring about your neighbor and working together. They might be polarities, but they are not opposites, and they're certainly not exclusive. And the idea that if we begin to care for our our neighbors, and to help them to work together in what is also a grand American tradition that somehow will be undermining self-reliance and personal responsibility. And, and that's just a political lie. That's just ridiculous and, and, and stupid on the uh, face of it. And increasingly we're seeing played out in the national politic and a, a growing awareness by Americans that it's not an either-or, that indeed we can have um, both personal responsibility and uh, self-reliance, and at the same time a sense of community and responsibility to our neighbors. That doesn't make us uh, socialists or communists any more than self-reliance would turn us into a bunch of fascists. These are extremes, and that's not what these literary giants, Emerson and, and, and um, I almost said Emerson and Shakespeare. <laughs> that would be a, a grand Freudian slip. Uh, Emerson and Thoreau and other transcendentalists, um, I would consider in there uh, uh, this category of transcendentalists, the American naturalist John Muir, uh, also... Um, the writer Walt Whitman, um, they were rebels. They were people that believed strongly in their intuition and in 
not only the right and the opportunity, but the responsibility that every person has to decide for themselves who they are and what they're for, to avail themselves of the opinions of various institutions and even authorities, but ultimately to respect the fact that the master is within, so to speak. Heaven is within. That to which you aspire is already part of you. It just needs discovery and development. It needs to be brought forward. So I have a handout I'm going to go to and read a couple of definitions, first of transcendentalism and then um, a little more about what these um, people like Emerson and Thoreau thought about self-reliance, and then you can compare this to how you're thinking now to what you're seeing happening in America right now. The fact that after uh, more than 100-year battle, uh, we finally have a moderate uh, national health care bill uh, as law. We're the last industrialized nation in the world uh, to care about its own people in this way. And still we have some resistance, and still we have scare tactics, and still we have uh, violence, uh, bricks thrown through uh, windows and such by those who always dig in their heels, who are always afraid of progressive thinkers, who are always trying to drag us back to neo-colonial times, uh, even to the tyranny of monarchy. I think many people on the right wing would just like the president to be the king. There were many people, certainly in George Washington's time, that wanted that same thing. Uh, George Washington would be the king. Washington did not want to be a king. <laughs> that was the last thing he wanted. But uh, that's alive today, I think. Certainly, uh, we just had a King George, George W. Bush, that uh, acted like a, a monarch, if not a tyrant, certainly a monarch, um, believing that he was not one-third of the government, but that the executive was superior to the legislative and the judicial and did not need their advice or consent uh, could uh, could declare war anytime he wanted, or basically do whatever he wanted, ignore laws, and write his own laws with executive signing statements. And, uh, the, the history of the first decade of the 20th century has already been written. Let's define this word transcendentalism, because I never really understood it in high school or in college when it was described to me the American Transcendentalist Movement, I knew it had something to do with a, shall I say, rebellion against the status quo, not only church and state, but even the idea that the frontiers that needed to be developed were all frontiers of land and property, and that development meant cutting down trees and other living things, to build buildings, big square buildings that were then dead and in decay. And our obsession with property and with owning property, whether it be land or then developing that land, 
um, was seen by the transcendentalists as certainly wrong-headed and incomplete. They were not opposed to private property. They just thought that there were other frontiers to be pioneered and developed, uh, internal frontiers, if you will, of, of mind and spirit, that go west, young man, go west was one thing, but how about closing your eyes and going inside to find out what makes you tick, to discover what you care about and then to contemplate why you care at all. Uh, this uh, inner pioneering, this inner frontier was certainly part of it. I found a definition this morning in doing a little research before the webinar today that I'll share with you, a couple of them actually. One is that transcendentalism is any philosophy based upon a doctrine that says the principles of reality are to be discovered by the study of the processes of thought, or a philosophy emphasizing the intuitive and the spiritual above the empirical. Uh, I think that second phrase is even stronger than the first. Process of thought sort of goes without saying. Any understanding involves some thinking and feeling. But a philosophy emphasizing the intuitive and the spiritual above the empirical, emphasizing the invisible and unseen over that which is obvious and physical and material right there in front of your face. Emerson and Thoreau, it's often said in the literature, were influenced strongly by the philosophers Kant and Hegel and their arguments that every human being has within them a body of knowledge that transcends the physical senses. That's perhaps where transcendentalism comes from. What are we transcending? We're transcending the five physical senses, sense and sensation, and looking at that which remains, this body of knowledge that is innate and within us and accessed by intuition more than by reason. That this knowledge, moreover, represents an indwelling soul, or the voice of God within man. Imagine how radical this is from the point of view of the established churches, Catholic and Protestant, Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Muslims. None of the orthodoxy wants to hear this kind of talk, that you don't really need the church, the mosque, the temple. The holy books are nice, read them, study them, but only to stimulate this inner knowing, you can transcend the appearance of things and find innate within you through your intuition, through those contemplative epiphanies, those moments of aha, more about God than you may get out of any book or any Bible, no matter how inspired it, uh, it may appear to be. So it's also central to the belief of the transcendentalist that every child is born with a conscience. Every child is born, if not knowing the immediately right from wrong, given the you know 
the, the, the newborn not even being able to, to see for the first 18 months. But within time, the child develops this innate and inherent ability to know right from wrong. In other words, the transcendentalists, Emerson and Thoreau and, and, and others, felt that um, his moral sense uh, was a birthright and knowing right from wrong and good from bad and these internal ethics were developed in childhood but then as the child becomes a teenager and moves out into the adult world that moral sense becomes calloused and um, you become more cynical and begin to listen to the world instead of the inner voice okay I think it's also interesting that Emerson and Thoreau and and also about the same time many of the founders of the so-called New Thought Movement in England that gave rise to what's often called the New Age or the Aquarian Age, this burgeoning interest in America starting in the 60s. Well, not starting, but we see exploding in the 60s and carrying on today with an interest in mysticism and metaphysics. Uh, again, the New Age or the Aquarian Age, now it's 2012, and, and it looks like progressive people and born-agains both agree that the things are coming to some sort of head, and the evangelicals and, and more orthodox uh, born-agains uh, see this uh, as the end of times, and the New Age people see it as a wonderful beginning, and of course... Uh, it's likely that you're both right. You know, it's a candy mint and a breath mint. That <laughs> the end of business as usual is an opportunity for the phoenix to rise from the ashes. Right? All the utopian novels always begin with a shipwreck, and 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 you just couldn't be doing any worse. It's always the darkest before the dawn. So. It could be you're both right. It is going to be the end of times. I don't know about, you know, December 21st in 2012, that precise date. I think we're more in a zone or a transition of rapidly changing times. And again, we discussed that last week in our program on cultural creatives and the tide that has swept Barack Obama and now health care into uh, into office and into reality. This is not socialism. We're a long way, you know, that all, <laughs> all these new uh, 32 million Americans that get health care are going to be getting it from private insurance companies at already inflated rates, so it's hardly socialism. Um, so... It's also about this time, as I began to say, the early 1800s, that the transcendentalists and the New Thought people were beginning to read, at least the better educated. And remember, Emerson graduated from Harvard University. He's very well educated. A number of other colleges and major universities in New England and the Boston area. And these people were beginning to read Hindu and Buddhist scripture. And they compared Eastern philosophy to Judeo-Christian and Muslim philosophy, particularly the former, of course. And um, given their perspective, 
which I've just described, which is that even the newborn infant has some sense of awareness of self and and contains a body of knowledge inherent and innate that is nothing short of access to your own oversoul, or one would argue to the absolute divine creator uh, itself. So it makes sense then to a transcendentalist that all of these millions of people in the East that are disciples of, students of uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, they can't all be wrong, they can't all be crazy. In their aspirations, they have developed, if you will, these understandings and this general consensus and many variations. They've had, you know, Buddhism spins off from Hinduism, um, and then Taoism spins off from that, and Jainism and Shintoism, and just as the Protestants or so-called Protestants spun off of the Catholic Church in the West, and then continued to fractionalize, to shatter, and so there's dozens and dozens of variations on um, on, on Protestantism, but. Emerson and Thoreau are saying, well, this is all good. You know, this is, they've got to be on to something in the East as well. And so they began to study that. And that's really the birth of transcendentalism. There's a little quote from Emerson I want to share with you at this point. And and this also, by way of introduction to our topic of self-reliance, it's core. I just want you to know it's more than Thoreau at Walden Pond. It's more than just self-reliance in terms of property and lifestyle, but also the influence of philosophy and spirituality. And I do want to touch on how this hit um, uh, their sense of social responsibility when it came to working to abolish slavery and also to promote feminism. This is often not discussed uh, around Emerson and Thoreau, but they were very much uh, abolitionists working against slavery because they really believed, again, everybody had this innate body of knowledge in them, right? Women, too. So the slaves have to be free. It has to be an end to racial discrimination, and women need to be free. You know, Here we had a brand-new American constitution, like 50, 60 years old, But when it says all men are created equal, it really means only men. Jefferson didn't mean women. He meant men, and he didn't really mean all men. He meant all white men who own property, (laughs) right? And so Emerson and Thoreau are coming along in the early 1800s and saying, no, this is not right. We've, you know, every human being is is a sacred being and in the image of its creator and and we should promote the development of a society that is just uh, in, in that regard. Um, let's see, where do I want to go with this? I have some quotations I want to share with you. I guess what I want to do before I go into these quotations again is make the case for self-reliance, which is our topic of the day today. 
being more than getting out of the rat race or getting off the grid, but certainly including that. Uh, you know, the problem with winning the rat race is you're still a rat. And it's not only the frenzy that many people um, become disgusted with, the frenetic pace of an American big city lifestyle, but also the apparent lack of ethics and morality, the uh, dog-eat-dog corruption that pervades the society. And so there's any number of reasons why people would want to leave town. I believe the corruption, the institutional corruption in the United States goes far beyond what most people imagine. I'm just going to leave it <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. I could begin to give you examples, but I'm sure you have your own examples. As I'm just going to let that statement lay out there, and maybe somebody can challenge it later with a, a question or a comment when we go to that part of the webinar. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, the United States of America, in all ways, uh, financially, economically, uh, politically, our corporations, our unions. Our educational systems, our criminal justice system, uh, we are corrupt through and through, completely corrupted. And yet, we claim to be religious. We claim to be, for the most part, Christian, and we claim in our Constitution that um, because we were formed, really, out of people escaping religious persecution in, in England and, and France and other areas of Europe that we would tolerate all religions, and not only tolerate, but even embrace the diversity of religion and philosophical thought as enriching. These are nice goals, but only really well-educated, sophisticated people understand them. Most people still see it as a battle. And indeed, this right-wing, born-again evangelical movement uh, in the United States has its hostile, it's extremely negative, it's it's violent uh, side, even the sense of superiority. About the time of the transcendentalists that we're talking about early 19th century here, even among the transcendentalists, there was a sense that in America, those of British and German heritage were superior to all other people, other Europeans, certainly Africans, Middle Eastern people, people from uh, the so-called Orient or Asia, uh, all were just a little inferior to... um, to the British and to the Germans, and maybe, you know, in declining order after that, the Greeks and and the French. But uh, there's always been an attitude, even among the so-called enlightened, 
that we continue to fight. So I just want to say that the self-reliance that we're talking about and making it relevant today is about the opportunity that you have to get out of this rat race, to get off the grid, to take advantage of the swing of the pendulum and maybe even some government programs and so-called stimulus money to become more independent and more self-reliant economically, to get yourself a little bit of land, to grow a little bit of food, even if it's only in your backyard. They used to call these victory gardens in World War II, call them survival gardens. Not only is it going to save you money, it may save your life to eat real food. Most grocery stores don't sell real food. They, they, they sell pretend food, hybrid foods, genetically modified foods, processed foods, uh, sprayed with all kinds of chemicals and preservatives. Um, what if you began to eat real food? Maybe your health care bills would go down might be too late for some of us, but never too late for others. Imagine real organic food, and you don't have to spray poison on the food before you bring it inside. It's sort of a crazy thing we do. Never did it until the end of World War II. And then as farms got bigger and bigger, we got trapped into having to do it. If you've got um, more than 150 acres... It's impossible to have an organic farm, pretty much. depends on the crop, but if you've got an acre or two, or even just a few hundred square yards in you know, the garden out and back that you can grow some of your own food, you don't have to use chemicals. You can nourish with mulch rather than artificial fertilizers and other natural fertilizers. Plants will build their own immunities to fungus and blight and insect damage, your loss will be minimal to insects and fungus, and, and the food will be so much more delicious. In the same way, a little more self-reliance in terms of energy. You can use appliances that are more efficient. You can rely on them less. You can collect and generate some of your own electricity with aerogenerators, so-called windmills, or uh, photovoltaics, or, or methane generators. Um, many people have created in the last 20 or 30 years some very sophisticated blends of appropriate technology, of high technology like a photovoltaic with low technology like a windmill or um, putting a paddle wheel in a stream that runs by your house. Free energy, right? In the water, in the air, in the sunlight, why are you paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars to an electric company to burn fossil fuel, right, to promote more air pollution, more greenhouse effect, more global warming, you know, you may have this beautiful high-tech hybrid electric car, but if you're going to plug it into a coal-fired power plant down the road, it's only a partial fix. So 
I'm here to suggest today, as we talk about self-reliance in the year 2010, that the transcendentalists remind us that it's more than Thoreau's experiment of leaving Boston to go out to uh, Walden Pond and his more cynical critics will always point out, well, he wasn't all that self-reliant. He had to go back into town to buy flour and sugar. Well, yeah, he can't grow sugar. He can't, you know, be completely um, independent or self-reliant. It's just a matter of moving in that direction. It's a matter of degree. Always beware of the either-ors. They're, the cynics, <laughs> they, they tend to be fearful uh, black or white binary thinkers. Watch for those people in your life and catch yourself before you ever buy into one of those either-ors. They dance all around you. There's a million of them and just as many people willing to take up the cause of everything or nothing. Uh, let that always be a red flag to you. There's always a third way. There's always a fourth option and a fifth possibility, a sixth variation and a seventh permutation. The pendulum swings between the extremes, and there's lots of options and choices, a matter of degree, so to speak, right? So we're talking about self-reliance not only in terms of supporting yourself materially, and getting out of the city and, and the corruption of an urban-based, frenetic rat race kind of a society. Get off the grid, become more self-reliant. Emerson would have been proud of us. But keep in mind that these guys were also talking about self-reliance in terms of spirituality, in terms of human potential, using not only the books that have been written to inspire your own insight, to read diverse and even antagonistic sources of spiritual literature, to stimulate the creative process, allowing you to understand not only what these divergent sources are saying, but through the contrast of the two, through the antagonism, if you will, you find a, 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 an enhanced awareness awakened within you. You, Well, the phrase is read between the lines. It, there's just more available when you expose yourself to diverse literature. How anybody could ascribe to a particular religion without studying, to the same extent, all other religions baffles me. How could any Christian be so sure of himself or herself and the orthodoxy of that particular religion, the Catholics or any of the Protestants that broke off of it, if they've never read a Hindu text, if they've never studied the Koran, if they haven't read deeply not only the so-called Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, but the the Book of Splendors, the Zohar, uh, the Talmud, the other holy books of the Jewish religion, much less the Buddhist sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, and the other inspired writings of the East. 
one would would suggest that you may have no right at all to speak up in a, <laughs> and and um, proclaim your right to an opinion if you're so narrow and parochial in your focus. So part of self-reliance has to be not only grow your own food and generate and collect your own energy and and, and you know get off the grid and out of the big city, but be more personally responsible for what you think and feel about the great psychological and philosophical issues that you face. Understand that in addition to these external texts from many sources, many religions, and many philosophies, there is also within you, as I mentioned 10 or 15 minutes ago, and this is core, a core belief of the transcendentalists, an innate body of knowledge from the time you're born, or it could be argued that you bring it with you as you incarnate. This touches on the heretical belief, heretical if you're a mainstream Protestant or a Catholic, the heretical belief that you're an extension of an oversoul that exists in heaven, that your soul was born in a reservoir of human souls at the beginning of time, that you are an extension, as an incarnation of that soul, you are an extension of that soul, and your soul remains above you now. And you can access it now for guidance and inspiration. Many people believe that their spirit guides, be they animal guides or ancestors or ascended masters or angels, Catholics believe everyone has a guardian angel. Well, maybe that's your own oversoul, you see. Maybe that's you between lifetimes and continuing throughout those incarnations to stand above your separated form nature. It begs the question, could you then access that higher intelligence, that source of ageless wisdom, the master, you could say the Christos, the Christ in you, or the Buddha nature in you, can that be accessed? Well, mystical Christians and Buddhists have always said yes. And transcendentalists were part of that whole emerging. I mean, in, in a sense, transcendentalists are mystics. They are people who believe in meditation, prayer, and contemplation. They are mystical in that they honor the validity and the value of a personal experience from an epiphany to, you know, a lid lifting, mind blowing fit of cosmic consciousness and awareness or even the slightest little insight or understanding that brings some light into the center of your head. Lots of religions talk about love and light as manifestations of spirit. Excuse me, I uh, need to take a sip here of my coffee. 
So, having said this, let's go into some of the quotations because uh, we're also we're we're already a little over forty minutes into the program. Let's talk about some of these quotable quotes, and then we'll go to your text comments on the web and see if we have some callers today who have anything to contribute in the way of, uh, again, comments or questions. Mostly we get comments, and that's fine, too. I can always ask you a question following on your comment. Self-reliance in all aspects, right? From the commonly understood Thoreau and Emerson self-reliance, meaning um, more independence and growing your own food and um, um, having few material possessions in aspiring to find a sense of yourself spiritually inside you rather than looking only to the old books and the grand cathedrals and the pomp and ceremony uh, of the church. Also, self-reliance means working for social justice to end slavery and fight for women's rights, and there's certainly plenty of opportunity in those types of areas for more social justice to to end war. Emerson went to prison, to jail anyway, for refusing to pay war tax. And ultimately, self-reliance just in finding your connection to spirit and honoring that within you and exalting and holding it above the authority of the world. You may end up in jail, too, (laughs) if you do that. There's a great story about Thoreau going to visit Emerson. I think I have this right. It may have been the other way around, but I think it was Emerson that went to prison or jail for refusing to pay his war tax. And uh, Thoreau comes to visit him, and he says, My dear Mr. Emerson, what are you doing in there? And Emerson looks up at Thoreau and said, a better question, Henry, would be, what are you doing out there? In other words, why are you not in prison with me? Uh, Have you paid your war tax? Are you succumbing to the corrupt authority of the world around you, church and state? I love quotable quotes. I guess you know that about me. I hope you do, too. Here are a few, some from Emerson, a few from Thoreau. And uh, a quote from Emerson on self-reliance I want to read in addition to these shorter quotable quotes. First, self-trust is the first secret to success. Ralph Waldo Emerson. The very first secret to success is to self-trust. Right? Trust yourself. And so we begin self-reliance. Self-reliance begins as self-trust, as self-respect as self-love and self-confidence, as the ancient Greeks uh, said, to know thyself, or Polonius in Shakespeare's Hamlet, to thine own self be true. There's another one I like. This is sort of a, a verse or a poem almost from Emerson's book, Self-Reliance. He says, Man is his own star, and the soul that can render an honest and a perfect man commands all light, all influence, all fate. 
Nothing to him falls early or too late. Our acts, our angels are, for good or ill, our fatal shadows that walk by us still. Yet man is his own star and the soul that can render an honest and a perfect man. This is a mystical, if you will, certainly a transcendental challenge to the formal church, the Catholic church, the the Protestant or Protestant churches of, of Christianity that continue to promote as heretical any belief in the overshadowing soul and and insist on the the concept initiated by the Catholic Church early on in like the fifth century that the soul was not pre-existing. Even some of the early church fathers, like Origen, believed very much in the pre-existence of the soul. Today it's heresy to talk about such things as a, a soul that extends itself into form and stands above you, superior to you, worthy of aspiration, sharing the ground like Christ, sharing the ground of God. So Emerson would be heresy to most Orthodox Christians. Man is his own star. See? That soul is above you like a star, standing over you, superior to you, with more knowledge than you have, yet accessible, he goes on, and that soul can render an honest and perfect man. If you believe, as the Church teaches, both Catholic and Protestant, that the soul is fashioned upon conception, then this is a brand new soul in each individual. This part of the doctrine is you only live once. You get one shot at it, so this is a brand new soul. How could it render you an honest and perfect person? See, is the soul a subset of you, or are you a function of the oversoul? Emerson and, and Thoreau were clear on this. Again, look at this next quotation as as metaphor, as going beyond its literal meaning. This is Thoreau. I believe this comes from from the Walden Pond book. He says, A man is rich in proportion to the number of things which he can afford to throw away. A man is rich in proportion to the number of things he can afford to throw away. Well, Obviously, most people see that as, in the most obvious and simple sense, is just anti-materialism. Just get rid of your junk. Stop this conspicuous consumption. Move out of town. Go to your 21st century of Walden Pond and grow some of your food. But how about throwing away some of the dogma and doctrine that has weighted you down, that you've carried, even if it hasn't made any sense to you at all. And to live lightly on the land, to be independent and self-reliant, includes in a spiritual sense as well. The truth is within you. The Master is within. Heaven is within. Okay? Turn within. Church doesn't like that. Emerson. When a resolute... This is sort of cute. I like them. I like this. When a resolute young fellow steps up to the great bully, that is the world, 
and takes him boldly by the beard, he is often surprised to find that the beard comes off in his hand and it was only tied on to scare away the timid adventurers. <laughs> this is Emerson encouraging us to stand up against the world, against the establishment and authority, and pull off that silly beard and and anything that that stands between us as two human souls. Um, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful quotation. I hope you like that. Thoreau, if a man constantly aspires, is he not elevated? Nice and short, concise terms, right? Says it simply. Aren't you elevated simply by your aspiration? In other words, aren't, don't just the questions themselves enhance your understanding? And, and even if you don't get the answers, or even if the answers that are coming into your awareness are not full and complete or final, isn't there just something in asking the question that, that motivates you and, and elevates you? And of course there is. Here's Emerson again. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and, the, and, and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. By mean, he's referring to common, not nasty or angry, but all common or ordinary egotism vanishes, and I become the transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or parcel of God. That we live our lives in parts and bits and pieces is an Emerson concept that is as mystical as anything you'll ever read in Eastern philosophy or even from the uh, the Christian mystics. Uh, this whole idea of I am nothing and everything and the boundaries of appearance are nothing but phenomenal appearance. There's a reality beyond the veil, and I can access it. It's within me. Right? In form, but above and free of form. And let me do a couple of more, and then we'll go to the uh, to the comments. So if you want to write a couple of comments or questions or press star two on the phone. We'll do that in just a couple of minutes. Some of the better known quotes, first Emerson, to laugh often, this is so beautiful, to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a better place, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition. To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. Not much you can say to add to that. That's pretty powerful stuff. Thoreau. I learned this, at least, by my experiment. He's talking, of course, of Walden. If one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he had imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected. Uh, 
in common hours. Thoreau. A couple of more I just want to throw in because I love them so much. Emerson, finish each day and be done with it. You've done what you could do. Some blunders and absurdities no doubt crept in, but forget them as soon as you can, for tomorrow is a new day. More Emerson, there are always difficulties arising that tempt you to believe your critics are right. <laughs> you, you will doubt yourself from time to time. And Thoreau, if you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost, for that is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. Okay. A little taste of Emerson and Thoreau and this early 19th century, 1800s transcendentalism that was born up around Harvard University and, and Boston, so American and uh, influencing us even today. I thought you'd like that. So let's see if we have any um, questions or comments. Let me go first of all to the telephones and see who's on. Good. I have one caller with a hand raised. Robert, I'll come back to you in a minute. And then if any others want to comment besides Robert, press star two and uh, we'll come right back to this. Let me read a couple of text questions or comments in uh, Canoga Park. Phil's with us today, and um, he's just saying hello and talking about how much he enjoys the webinar, and he's talking about another little get-together that we've started doing, but I'm not ready to announce that yet. That's, we're just experimenting. So hello, Phil. Good afternoon. Nice to hear from you. And La Habra, Carol Postel is with us this morning. Hello, Carol. Nice to hear from you. She says aloha to Doreen as well. In uh, Los Angeles, Robert, Robert W. says aloha, Michael. In terms of Eastern texts, Emerson was most influenced by the Vedas and specifically the Upanishads. The latter spiritual scriptures will profoundly assist anyone exploring their role as an experiencer and, and a knower of things. Yeah, again, uh, there's no question but that this um, period, maybe 50 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, you know, we're a new country in the early 1800s, is about the time that, um, that people uh, of letters, anyway, people who were educated, were reading Eastern philosophy and 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 the Koran and exposing themselves to all spiritual philosophy. Why not help yourself to all of it? The the idea that here we are in 2010 and. And those who seem most certain of their particular religion or philosophy are often the ones that are the least well-studied. Something wrong with that, somehow. Something wrong with that. Okay, um, I bounced out of, uh, I bounced into the wrong area, so I hope I'm still on the line here. Let's, let's go to the telephones. I'll click on auto-refresh. 
and we'll see if we can bring Robert in. Hello, Robert. You're on the webinar with Michael Benner. Hello. Aloha, Michael. How are you? Aloha, Robert. Better and better, thanks. Hey, I'm, I'm double dipping today. That was uh, that was me with a text question. Uh, was typing is not my strong suit, <laughs> so I had to resort to the phones. I appreciate it. I was thinking uh, just for a moment about the last one of the last quotes you read about uh, man is his own star. Yeah. And you've kind of said it in numerous ways, but these guys were big believers in the idea of self-governance, as in there is really no need for some body of individuals uh, needed to impose uh, restrictions upon us, that every person was uh, in touch with a natural law in a natural sense that would allow them to govern themselves that would prevent them from harming others. And while I would suggest that there are many among us who clearly are not manifesting that, both, uh, well, all three guys that you mentioned, Whitman, Thoreau, and Emerson, would contend that the potential is with anybody. Yeah. It just has to be developed. I I think even with those who... um we're not as well educated as them. They would they would say every infant, every child is born with this innate knowledge. This is in direct contradiction to the Platonic theme of the blank slate, the idea that we're born brand new. Um, Neoplatonism takes a different angle on that, but I don't want to get too far afield. It speaks directly at this heretical idea for which millions of people have been killed by the church in the crusades and the inquisition and women burned at the stake as witches for believing that they had access to their own oversoul or to some repository or you know some body of knowledge that stands above us whether it's our angels our better angels our divine nature the the Christ Buddha within us, or our our own soul, the absolute creator itself, who knows? But um, oddly, many Christians see that only as a one-way street, and and I think Jews and Muslims too, less so in the East, that God, so-called, will hear our prayers, but there's no point in hanging around for an answer. You'll only see that in works, and why listen? Why visualize? Um, you're not going to get an answer. But mystics have said, are you kidding? Uh, not only are you, <laughs> you going to get an answer, but it'll be a little lifter. You know, you could you could have this uh, experience of nirvana, of, um, well, there's a lot of terms for it, samadhi, satori, shaktipat, uh, uh, cosmic consciousness, these blinding epiphanies where suddenly everything makes sense. And I think a lot of us had similar experiences with uh, psychedelics in the 60s. So uh, This is something that's creeping into the church, and uh, I don't know much about it, frankly, but I'm reading more and more on the Internet about these so-called Christian contemplatives who are maybe uh, evangelical or even born again in in some senses, but there's this renewed interest in contemplation. Catholics, too, there seems to be a movement within the Catholic Church 
uh, personal responsibility and spiritual self-reliance to use contemplation as a means of revelation. Well, that's the essential difference between the dogma-based religions, organized religions, concretized religions, and what we might call mysticism or spirituality. Mysticism, spirituality says you don't need an intermediary. Right. Uh, whereas this, you know, scares the hell out of the church because once you don't need an intermediary, you don't need a church. The term uh, vicar in England. Have you ever heard that for a, a, a parish, not a priest, but I think a Church of England minister? I've heard the term. I've never traced it to its roots. I think it may share a root with the word vicarious. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, the church is a soul stealer, really. Uh, I, you know, I love and admire any individual who aspires to know more. So I'm not interested in in making bad people out of religious people. I'm just saying I'm glad you found some truth there's some more truth that you may not know about. (laughs) There's more waiting in the wings. But um, this this idea to be encouraged that you can, in a contemplation, in a meditation, in a quiet place, develop your intuition and your access to this knowledge that the soul essentially is not a subset of you. I mean, I'll say it this way. I think what the church did was basically in the Trinity take the soul out of the middle between God and man and put itself between God and man. So you will experience the divine vicariously through us, the church, and our books and our laws. And that would relegate the soul as inferior to the mortal human being. The soul is a possession in the minds of most Christians, um, something inside them that they own that is going to survive bodily death. Right. So from the top down, then in the church's view, it would be the most high, the church, and the human, rather than the most high, the soul, and the human, and then the church serves the human. <laughs> They've turned it around so we serve the church. And uh, But the tragedy, again, is we can talk about this now, but there are millions and millions and millions of our ancestors that have been murdered, slaughtered, tortured by people that have held out these beliefs. And the corruption that we see in the Catholic Church today and 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 certainly the Protestants, uh, we can see these in Congress these self-righteous, uh, homophobic, Christians. Aren't they the ones that are having the closeted affairs and uh, you know end up um, this friend of Jerry Falwell's just a year or so ago that was found like David Carradine and killing himself with some kind of perverse sexual practice and he was one of these born-agains that said sex is wrong, sex is bad, you know, the gay movement, they're out to capture your children and it turns out they were just 
repressing their own perversion, or that their perversions was born, perhaps, of their own sexual repression. I'll have to do a show on that in the future. Nothing is more sexually repressed than the church. Exactly. It tends to anybody who takes up that mantle winds up corrupting themselves. It's it's just an it's an insidious system that supports itself through uh, uh, the destruction of uh, any adherent who's you know anybody who comes it's it's, it's like a, a large gaping maw that devours anything that comes into it. And the tragedy is is that many of the people that go into it are simply looking to participate in something greater than themselves. They're they're looking for that extra something. And that's what they've been conditioned to follow for generations. We've been given these things, you know, the the church, government, etc., our uh, institutions of education, turn to these. They've all failed. Yeah. And we want it instant, like we want TV dinner um, uh, religion. We want, um, you know, just mix it with water and instantly it's done kind of religion. We don't right. want to but, have to work at it. Right. Don't make, don't make me work. Don't make me exercise my own powers of observation. Just tell me how it is. Right without realizing that if you buy into that, you're really living in a kind of jail cell. Yep. Hey, thank you, Robert. You have a parting shot or final comment for us today? Uh, read the, uh, anybody who's interested, uh, read the uh, Upanishads. Do as Emerson did. Read the, uh, read the Upanishads. It's a mind blower, especially for anyone who is, Focus specifically on on Western religions or Christianity, their mind will be blown to study the Upanishads or the Dhammapada or you know the Bhagavad Gita, as you mentioned, things that were written hundreds or thousands of years before the Christian text, and you'll see them saying the same thing as the so-called Catholic and, and the Christian text did centuries later. It's it's an eye opener. I certainly agree. Thank you, Robert. Nice Take care, to talk Michael. with you, and uh, we'll talk to you again. All right. Take care. Aloha. Uh, let's go back to the um, – we have other callers, but nobody with their hand raised. Again, star two if you want to do that. Let me, let me go back then to the, um, to the Q&A and see if we're, we have anybody here that's – added anything since we were last year. Yeah, Tony's with us in Hollywood and my text says, hey Michael, uh, I'd like to welcome my longtime friend Brian, who's listening today to your show and to the Ageless Wisdom community. Thanks. Well, thank you Tony for that and uh, Brian, you're welcome. Listening on the web apparently. You have your choice every week, web, telephone, and then of course the streaming audio and the podcast. So, Hope you will, by the way, use whatever means are available to you to send these programs to people that you know, as Tony's done bringing Brian in. We all know people who uh, have similar beliefs, you know, or interests. Um, Again, it's not about arriving at a set of beliefs that we can agree on. It's about supporting each other and our interests that ideally are never-ending. Um... Socrates, among many others, is famous for 
having talked about the fact that there really is no there there, that when it comes to understanding the universe, yourself, and your relationship in that one thing, it's as if we are standing before an ocean that, as we understand it, becomes broader and deeper. Indeed, the universe as a physical thing is expanding. <laughs> Maybe as a, a metaphysical thing is expanding, and perhaps we are the agents of that expansion. The idea that this is not merely an opportunity or a recreation that we could know ourselves in this way, but it's an essential unfolding of the universe, that the universe needs our experience. Again, the religious person would use the word God here. I'm talking about universe as God meaning all that is, not a separated God or a man on a cloud or a, a cartoon character reaching out from someplace else, but the one life, the universe, the one thing, as the ancient Egyptians uh, referred to it, that uh, to understand itself or experience itself, uh, it, it needs to grow, it needs to express itself, just as each of us as individuals, uh, apparently separated but spiritually still connected, need to grow. We need to express ourselves. When we don't do that, we get sick. Uh, the need for creative self-expression goes beyond education and psychology to spirituality. Perhaps that's what we are, creative expressions of the ultimate creative source. Well, that, that's a responsibility that each of us has then to not only express ourselves creative, creatively, but to plumb ourselves, to know ourselves, to discover new bits and pieces of self and follow the ache, follow the longing, you know, um, follow the hurt. <laughs> There's a great scene in one of the Harry Potter movies where uh, Harry's friend Ron uh, is told to, to get the information he's looking for. He has to go into the the dark, deep, dark, dangerous forest, the jungle. And Ron says, well, how am I going to do that? How, how will I ever find my way around? And and the wizard says, well, you have to follow the spiders. And Ron goes, oh, no, why do I have to follow the spiders? Why, why can't I follow the butterflies? Um, there's plenty of time to follow the butterflies in your life, but the real hard-hitting truth and the really important stuff comes to you when you follow your heartache. Not only your heart, but your heartache when you face your fears. Uh, and then come up again victorious time and time and time and time again. But you have to allow yourself to be crushed sometimes. have to allow yourself to experience real confusion and, and alienation and, and those horrible, horrible broken hearts. Uh, everybody gets a quota uh, of that. Again, it's a horrible thing to have to go through, but... 
you heard Robert use the word concretize? That's a real important word. The heart gets fixed and crystallized or concretized like everything else in form. We don't like change. That's part of existing in the form nature. We dig in our heels. And indeed, that's what hurts, is not the change, but the resistance to the change. If we would but die to the changes in our lives, allow ourselves to be, and even dedicate ourselves to being instruments of that change. Cheerleaders for change, Timothy Leary used to say, agents, provocateurs for uh, a progressive getting better and better than we have to not only work on ourselves, but also on matters of social justice. It's not enough to want peace. You have to work for justice to help create peace. Fortunately, we live in a time where there's plenty of literature and uh, information available for us. We stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us, I would just say, as Robert said and others have suggested in their comments here, go out of your way to look for diverse and even antagonistic information. That's your responsibility. You're not looking for the one right way. You're looking for diverse and even antagonistic information to help you understand all ways and all paths that have appealed to men by that I mean humanity, not men as a gender. And then you find your own way, for you are unique. You have fingerprints and DNA that pretty much prove your uniqueness. So why should you see things like everybody else? What value are you to the universe if you're just like anyone else, let alone everyone, everyone, <laughs> everyone else, right? We don't need you if you're just like if you're if you're interested in conforming and believing what everybody else believes. What good are you to anybody? You see? Of course, there can be broad areas where we overlap and intersect, but I'm talking about honoring the parts where you're out there alone, and uh, you don't have a whole lot of support, but you just can't deny the feeling about this or this or this and the temptation is to knuckle under to the authority well look around you authority is corrupt the establishment is corrupt it is in decay our whole nation has been as I said earlier driven off the road into a ditch and going back getting back on the road is never going to happen if we pursue the policies that got us here. Even if it did, we'd just end up in the ditch again. Let's let's do a visualization exercise, a little contemplation or meditation ourselves, and then we'll call it a day. So close your eyes, get comfortable. If this is a good time for you anyway, pump up those pillows. Sit straight, but not rigid, rather balanced. Get your shoulders back, your rib cage open, balance your head, do a couple of head rolls in one direction and then in another, and create an alignment 
is if you're interested in being a path of least resistance or a gentle precipitation downward of spirit into matter, of light into a world of particles and form, of awareness and insight and understanding, illuminating and animating that which often appears only to be a separated and physical existence. As you breathe, create and sense a feeling of relaxation to facilitate that receptivity, that openness. You can call this your intuitive nature. And it means you must give the mind, the logical reasoning self, a rest. You basically ignore it. As you watch yourself breathe and gently place your attention on feelings of letting go of muscular tension. Remember how it feels to hold a piece of trash in your hand above a wastebasket. You don't have to push it into the wastebasket. You can just open your hand and gravity will pull it in. Drop that waste paper into the basket. That's the feeling of dropping your stress, carried as muscular tension, dropping your negativity, releasing fear, stress, and anxiety. Nervousness, worry, and doubt. And giving yourself permission to feel safe and relaxed. Take a nice, slow, deep breath. Hold for a moment as you peek, and now as you exhale, just as slowly feel the letting go. Breathe beyond where you'd normally stop the rest of the way, and then do it again. Two, three, four times, as slowly as possible, breathe in strength and power, and as you exhale, release stress, tension, and anxiety. And then as you allow your breathing to return to its natural rhythm, to find its own cadence. Marching to your own drummer, as they say. I'd like you to imagine yourself in nature, like Thoreau at Walden Pond, away from the cities and far away from the roads that lead to the cities. Imagine you've left the roads behind and walked out into something wild. Something that a real estate person might describe as undeveloped. 
But as you walk away from the cities and the roads, as you imagine yourself now walking deeper and deeper into nature, you don't see it as undeveloped. You see it as quite complete and quite whole. And within minutes of moving into what is real and what is natural, what is alive and growing still, you feel a peace, a peace of mind, but also an emotional tranquility, as if the deeper into the forests and the valleys and the meadows and the deserts and the isolated beaches, the deeper you go into nature, the safer you become. And the more aware you become of that information and understanding that arrives not through physical sense or sensation, but rather through an inner channel that arrives not through the deductive nature of logic, but rather by a gentle welling up from inside. Sometimes it'll make you laugh. Sometimes it'll make you cry. that it always makes you more real. And whatever the feeling, you let it go rather than hold on to it. For all, all holding on is fear and, and tension and anxiety, even attempts to hold on to love is a fear of losing love. Love is everywhere equally present, need not be held. Any more than the atmosphere around you needs to be carried from place to place. Any more than a fish would have to concern itself with whether there will be water at its destination. Like the water, like the air, love as consciousness is an ocean everywhere equally present. And even if you identify yourself as a crystallized point within that oneness, a point of view, a particular perspective, you have access to the view. You have access to your better nature, to your higher self. Remember a time when you had a great idea. When a problem that was bothering you was suddenly, instantaneously solved by a realization or a revelation and an inspiration, an intuitive hit of some sort 
that rendered the problem moot. Where did that come from? That aha, that epiphany, that light. Some might argue that it was nothing more than a new recombination of information you had all along that initially came from the world around you. Others, however, would say, no, you're channeling that information internally, intuitively, and that information transcends, that eclipses, and is superior to the information that you've received from the physical, material world around you. There are channels of love and light. Indeed, rather than thinking of channels moving through you, identify as the channel itself. Be the medium. Be the conductor, the path of least resistance between spirit and matter. Like a spiritual lightning rod feels safe enough and relaxed enough with an open mind and a quiet heart to receive the awareness, the enhanced awareness, the expanded consciousness to realize in a practical sense, solutions to your problems and goals, but even more importantly, the meaning of your life, the purpose of your existence. Not all of it at once, just enough to keep you coming back for more. And so ideally our teachers have advised us to Come to a place like this, with eyes closed, feeling very safe and relaxed, having aligned ourselves as a path of least resistance, we open ourselves to the divinity within, the heaven within, the Father aspect the most high and absolute within. The Christ Buddha nature, however, can be thought of as the soul that shares the ground of the most high. An aspect of self not separated, barely individuated, more a point of view really than anything. that allows you to deal with what appears to be a very separate and unique existence in the world. By identifying, by relying, for our theme today is self-reliance, on the awareness of your own oversoul, in form but above and free of form, you find a balanced place between spirit and matter, between God and man between heaven and earth. It speaks of wholeness and unity through harmony. Allows you to recognize yourself 
your responsibilities and opportunities to work in the world for justice and peace, to reform, to even redeem a place of ignorance and corruption and fear, and literally bring heaven to earth. Be less concerned, I'd suggest, as many teachers have, less concerned with leaving here to go to some other place called heaven than to bring heaven to earth and to redeem, to save, to resurrect, to transform, to transmute. This scary place called life on earth. Scary and often cruel. And even the evil place of ignorance and corruption. Be that agent for change. Self-reliance. Self-interest for the greater good of all concerned. So feel yourself having been filled by this love and this light, this sense of purpose and meaning, universal and personal, objective and subjective, a fulfillment that you release, of course, and allow to radiate out into the world, receptive to the love and the light you become, a radiator of love and light, radiant, allowing your radiance to emanate, radiate, move out into the world around you. With kindness, with forgiveness, with patience and generosity, tolerance, a willing to help heal and work for justice on all levels. And allow yourself to come in touch with how that feels within you, that you might effortlessly and gently bring that with you that fulfillment, that warmth, that sense of meaning and purpose, that integrity, that wholeness, bring that with you gently and effortlessly as you reorient yourself to my voice, to the, to the room around you, to what you'll see in a moment when you open your eyes. And bring with you this new orientation carry it with you throughout the day today as you take a nice slow deep breath now inhaling fill your lungs and as you exhale open your eyes wide awake alert refreshed rested re-energized rejuvenated (laughs) back in the room and feeling fine hey thanks for being with us I want to Again, remind you, you can uh, use all the social nets, Twitter and Facebook, your your email, to 
let other folks know that we're here and we're doing these free webinars every Sunday. I'd love for you to join our social net, which we've set up like Facebook, but just for people that are interested in this kind of stuff. I mean, anybody can join. It's totally open to the public, but we focus on personal and spiritual development, and the address is very similar to the basic website. So, again, my website, which you can explore, there's lots of well, the archives of this webinar and lots of really cool articles, is at theagelesswisdom.com, after the W's, theagelesswisdom.com. No sign-in, no no email is necessary, but as you come on in, you can sign up for the newsletter if you're not getting it. And then sign up for theagelesswisdom.ning.com. That's N like Nancy, I-N-G. And that's our personal and spiritual development social net, like, like Facebook for for people that are interested in human potential theagelesswisdom.ning.com and there you do need to opt in leave an email you'll have a profile I'd love for you to fill out upload a, an avatar a headshot of yourself and get to know some of the other people in there you can post videos and JPEGs and music and spoken word MP3s you can message each other there's a discussion group there's blogs uh, event uh, notifications all kinds of cool stuff, and that's all free as well. And finally, I want to remind you that if you like this work and you really want to go to the next level, we have a studio-quality premium podcast that I do with my business partner of 35 years, Steve Snyder. The series is called Finding Yourself in Paradise. It's a Again, like this program, but it's premium, studio quality. It's a conversation every week about human potential with Steve and me. And we ask 99 cents for that. You can subscribe for 3.96 a month. That's it. And, um, you know, if you do that, you're really making all of this possible. So... We find that about one in ten of our listeners is also supporting the Focused Passion work. This is all at the, the website, focusedpassion.com. So if you'd like to add a premium audio podcast on human potential and personal development and support what we're doing here and all of our related projects, the newsletter and the, the uh, social net site and more articles and we're going to have uh, Maui retreats coming up in the near future as well. Uh, get on board at focusedpassion.com. That's got an ED in it, the W's dot focusedpassion.com. If you just leave an email in your first name, you get six programs free and have your own account with a password. And then at any time, you can either buy individual programs for 99 cents or subscribe for 99 cents a week, 3.96 a month. Focusedpassion.com, and thank you, thank you, the 10 percent of you or so that are helping us uh, in that regard too. That's what makes all of this free and makes all of it happen. 
Okay, so thanks to Steve uh, for all of that and all of his help. And I uh, hope you'll join us every week for this mystery school, the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Join us live, if you can, by the web or the telephone. If not, listen to the replay, streaming audio, or the podcast. And again, if you can find an extra, well, not quite $4 a month, an extra $0.99 cents a week, go to FocusedPassion.com. You're going to love these programs, and we guarantee it. You finish a month that you're not happy with the program, we'll rebate your $3.96. you got to be happy. And those programs like these can be forwarded to friends for free. In both cases, we supply the, the gadget that you use to pass these programs on. So, hey, thank you so much for listening, for being with us. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.